Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2. I want to welcome everyone here in our, in our sanctuary for our celebration service. I was able to spend a few moments uh, right at the beginning of our summit service, and so we welcome all of you as well. And all those that are watching from home, you are a part of what's happening here, and we are glad that you're worshiping with us. We began a few weeks ago focusing uh, in the book of Revelation on seven letters that Christ sent to seven churches, seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor and what we would call Turkey today. And through the apostle John, Christ gave this information. John then wrote it down, sent it to these pastors so that they could present it to their churches. And so we've been looking at these letters, one church a week, and we come today to week number three and church number three, the church at Pergamum. Now, if you're a, a geography kind of person, I can, I can tell you where we are. We started at Ephesus, if you know where that is. And then last week we were in Smyrna, which is about 40 miles, 30 miles, perhaps I should say, just straight north from Ephesus, also a coastal town. Now we go about 40 more miles north to the city of Pergamum. Uh, it is not a coastal city. It's about 15 miles from the coast, but because it's an elevated city, you can actually see the sea uh, from the city of, of Pergamum. And, and today I just want to jump into the scripture passage. So look with me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. The scripture says, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now we learned last week, the angel means the pastor, it's his responsibility to take the word from Christ, the message from God, and bring it to the people. And so the letter was sent to the pastor, to the messenger, and then he would read and share this with, with his church. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now if you're not familiar with the Bible, that may sound odd. What, what is this sword all about? Well, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, uh, anytime it speaks of the sword, it's talking about the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of God. And, and we could uh, perhaps take a long time and talk about all the things that that means. That's another message. Uh, but here he's talking about his Word, the Word of God. Look at verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, uh, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. And so there's some interesting things here. He talks about Antipas. That's a name that doesn't really pop up anywhere else in scripture. Uh, perhaps it was the pastor, the previous pastor, we don't know, but it was a man who uh, was required to worship the emperor, which was the law in that, uh, in that day and in that land, and he refused, and so he was executed. But he remained faithful, and the church remained faithful uh, all the way to the end. And so Jesus says that that is a very good thing about this church. But what I want you to notice here, something that I know stood out to you as we read this verse, it talks about Satan's home. It says at the beginning of the verse, where Satan's throne is, and then at the end of the verse, it says where Satan lives. What could that mean? What could that mean? Well, this isn't really the focus of this letter, but I think it's important to stop here and talk about this because it's such an unusual reference. I think we learn three things about Satan just from those two references. 
First of all, we're reminded that Satan is real. Uh, People don't want to believe that today. People dismiss uh, the idea of the devil or Satan today. We're just too sophisticated for that. But I'm not sure why that is. Because when you look around, when you turn on the news, there is overwhelming evidence of some supernatural evil. You don't have to look very far around the world to find people doing things. And it's just hard to imagine that someone's that someone's heart could come up with something like that, something so evil like that. There's all kind of evidence that Satan is real. Uh, some have suggested even that the clearest indicator that Satan is real is that people don't believe in him because Satan is a deceiver. And perhaps his greatest work is that he has deceived the world. Nobody believes in him. So few people believe in him. It gives him freedom to do to do his further deception. You know, the Bible is not confused about this. Uh, The Bible mentions Satan, it mentions the devil over and over and over. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament talk about Satan. Jesus was not confused about Satan. Jesus spoke about Satan over 25 different times in the Gospels. And then here in this letter that Jesus uh, sends to the church at Pergamum, he says that Satan lives in Pergamum. So we know, number one, Satan is real. The second thing we see about Satan in this, in this verse is that Satan is strategic. It says that he lives in Pergamum. Now you've got to understand that Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not God. He's not God-like in that sense. God is everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. The Holy Spirit is everywhere at the same time. Satan is in one place, in one place. And so in this case, in this point of history, Satan was in Pergamum. Now, why was Satan there? Well, I don't know. I mean, there are whole books written about this and I don't know, sometimes people's imaginations just run away with them. But here's what we do know. Satan chose to be in Pergamum for a specific strategic reason. What we know about Satan from this, because sometimes he's in Pergamum and sometimes he's somewhere else. His throne one one year may be in one place and his throne some other year may be in some other place. He has a strategic purpose. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. He is scheming against you. And while Satan cannot be everywhere, Satan has demons that can cover the face of the earth and, and he has a strategy, he has a specific scheme to destroy you. Satan has a scheme to destroy my marriage. Satan has a scheme to destroy my ministry. Satan has a scheme to destroy my ability to raise my children and point them to God. And Satan has a strategy for you. Satan has a strategy for our church. Satan has a strategy for your marriage, for your kids, for your reputation. Satan is strategic. You know, when I'm, at, uh, when I'm in my home... I'm just relaxed. Uh, I guess like every other person in Texas, I own a firearm or two, but uh, I don't have it with me in my home. I mean, it's in my home, but you know, when I walk from the kitchen to the living room, I, I, I don't pause when I get to the, you know, to the doorway and, and just, you know, just peer in so I can clear the room before I get in. If I go to the restroom, I 
I remember when my kids were little, they, they said they always looked behind the door, under the sink, and in the shower to see if there was a bomb. And I asked my kids one time, well, what would a bomb look like? You know, I, I need to know too. Because they didn't, they didn't know. But, but when I'm in my house, I, I'm just comfortable. I'm just comfortable. And the reason why I'm comfortable, the reason why, you know, a lot of times the door's probably not locked and, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't fear when I walk into the backyard or when I go out to my car, it's just because I don't think anybody's out to get me. I don't think I have any enemies. I don't think anybody's going to, you know, shoot at me or punch me in the nose. I, I feel perfectly safe. But if I knew that there was somebody that was trying to take my life, that there was somebody that might be hidden in the bushes, that there's somebody that might have snuck into my house to take my life, I would be much more careful. Uh, the, the gun wouldn't be put away in a room. The gun would be in my hand, right? I would walk into a room with a whole different attitude. I would be looking around to see if it was safe. Well, here's what you need to know. Uh, nobody's going to bother you in your home, and I'm safe and you're safe. But there is one who is out to get us, and that's Satan. And like I said, I think he has a strategy to ruin my marriage. I think he has a strategy to, to, to destroy our church. And we need to walk around carefully. We need to be on the lookout because Satan has a strategy. The third thing I see about Satan right here in this verse is that Satan's realm is here and it's now. You know, sometimes when I hear people speak of Satan or people speak of the devil, they talk about Satan is one who rules from hell. In fact, uh, I, I've been guilty of this. Pastors sometimes will speak of the lies of Satan and will say that that lie came straight from the pit of hell. And we get in our minds that, that Satan, what he is master over, what his domain is, is the, some underworld, some, some uh, it's hell. It's, it's, what, it's where lost people will go in the end. But that's just not biblical. Uh, hell is not a place for Satan to rule. Hell is a place designed for Satan to be punished. So where is Satan's throne? Where is Satan's realm? It is here and it is now. You know, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. He said it three times just in the Gospel of John. Paul called Satan the God of this age and the ruler of the power of the air. Listen to 1 John 5, 19. It says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So why do we need to know? Why is it important for us to understand that the realm of Satan is right here and right now? Well, it just goes back to the strategy. We need to know we live in Satan's land and Satan has a strategy against us and we need to be careful. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 8, one of my favorite verses, Peter writes, be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And Satan devours a lot of people you and I know every year. Uh, Satan ruins marriages. He ruins reputations. He leads people into sin that nobody could have imagined. He destroys churches. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert. Well, let's continue Continue to read. Verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. And so you'll notice in most of these seven letters, Jesus has something positive to say and something negative to say. One church only got positive. One church only got negative. 
Uh, but most of them are like this. He says something positive and something negative. So he goes on in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And so the story of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. Balaam uh, is, a, is a character found in the book of Numbers. He's, uh, he's mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. He's mentioned here also in the book of Jude, in the book of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter, I believe. And we're going to come back to Balaam in just a moment. So continuing to read, verse 15 says, In the same way you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. And that's very similar to what Balaam would have taught. So we're going to lump those together. Uh, verse 16 says, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice here he gives us a choice. You can repent or you can receive judgment. He says repent or receive judgment. Up to us. Verse 17, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now that almost sounds like he's speaking in code. I'm going to give you some hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Uh, what he's doing is he's, he's talking about the gospel, the gospel, and, and we'll end with that in just a moment. But let's go back again and look at this verse 14, the teaching of Balaam. So who is Balaam and what is his teaching and why is that important to us? Well, you read in Numbers chapter 25, I think it actually starts in Numbers 21 or 22 and then it climaxes in 25 and then in Numbers 31 and then in 2 Peter chapter 2, Jude 11, you read the story of Balaam and the king of Moab, whose name is Balak. Uh, so these are names that you're probably not familiar with, but the story is, is interesting. And the, the story is a very long story, so I'm just going to give you the, the high points of it. Uh, but Balaam was a Gentile prophet. Uh, he was not an Israelite. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Uh, but he was a man who at least knew of God and certainly knew the ways of God. So he had heard of God and he believed that God was real and he knew something of, of the things that God had, had been doing with the Israelites. So Balak, the king of uh, the Moabites, uh, they were, he was arrayed against the Israelites. And so they were enemies. And at this point in history, the Israelites were much more numerous, they were much more powerful, they had the greater military, and it seemed like that at every turn, God's hand was on them. Everything the Israelites did, it seemed to be a success. And so the, Balak, the king of the Moabites, thought, there's nothing I can do. I can't defeat this army. I, I, I am in jeopardy anytime I'm near them. What am I going to do? And so he gets the idea that he'll reach out to this prophet, Balaam, and he will pay the prophet to curse Israel. Does that sound like a good plan? And so he, he pays Balaam a bunch of money and Balaam goes to, to curse Israel. But in his attempt to curse Israel, he ends up pronouncing a blessing over Israel. So it's the opposite. 
And he tries it again and he tries it again three or four times. He's, he's going to bring a curse, but he ends up bringing a blessing. Now, the, the explanation for this is that a prophet does not originate anything. A prophet simply speaks what is true. A prophet just brings the message that God is already speaking. And so, um, so a prophet can't curse somebody. God can. And a prophet could say what God would have them to say about God's curse. But, but, but this prophet couldn't curse Israel. It was a crazy idea to start with. Uh, God's blessing was with Israel. And so... Uh, Balaam is frustrated because he wants the money. Balak is frustrated because he wants the victory. And so they come up with a plan. Balaam comes up with a plan. And he says, listen, Balak, you can't defeat them militarily, and apparently I can't curse them. Uh, but here's what you could do. You could take all the pretty young women, uh, the pretty, one, pretty young Moabite and Canaanite women, and you could send them down to the Israelites. And though we can't curse them, we could corrupt them. And so Balak thought that's a pretty good idea. And so uh, he sets, a very, sets up a sensuous feast. Uh, the daughters of Moab, the Bible calls them, are sent down to this feast. And all of these uh, Israelites are there. And this is a, a big feast. I'm going to give you a number in a minute, let you know just how big a feast it was and so the men, the women, and you, know, you fill in the rest of the story. It, well, it's described here in, in Revelation 2. We said that uh, uh, you, uh, Balak placed a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, that's not about eating meat. That's about worshiping these pagan gods. So these, these Israelite men uh, connected and maybe even married these Moabite women, and then they would worship the gods, the Moabite gods, along with these women. And so that was, uh, it was idolatry, and it says, and to commit sexual immorality. And guess what happened? It worked. They couldn't curse Israel, but they could corrupt Israel. And God judged Israel. In fact, God slew 24,000 men. This was a big party. And so that is the teaching of Balaam. Now, let me put it in terms that, that would apply to us. Why is it even that Jesus would, would say this to the people in Pergamum, the people in church in Pergamum. Jesus is talking about Christians. People, Jesus is talking about people like you, people like me. And he says, uh, don't follow because you are. You need to stop following the teaching of Balaam. What exactly does that mean? Well, the teaching of Balaam was that you can compromise, that you can be a follower of God, just like these Israelites. They didn't stop worshiping God. They didn't abandon Yahweh. They didn't stop going to the temple. You can be a Christian and you can go to church and you can love Jesus, we would say in our day, but it's okay if you also live a life of compromise because you're one of God's people. These Israelite men would have thought, you know, I was, I was born an Israelite. My daddy was an Israelite. My children will be Israelites. I am a part of, of God's family here on earth. And it's okay for me to compromise. And so Jesus says, this is, this is something that's happening in the church. People assume because they're children of God, they've prayed a prayer, they go to church faithfully, that, 
that it's okay if they have compromised. That's the teaching of, of Balaam. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking about how it is that, that we as Christians, there's, we as, as people who are, are faithful to church, many of us, most of us, how, how we can lie to ourselves and do exactly what they did in Pergamum, to do exactly what these, these Israelites did in Numbers chapter 31, we can find a way to excuse compromise and still believe that we're walking with the Lord. How could that happen? Well, I think it happens today because of three lies we tell ourselves. Three lies. Number one, I am saved so the standard has been lowered. I'm a child of God, pastor. I have, I have been bought by the blood of Christ. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am completely forgiven. Sins, past, present, and future. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. So my sin is just not a big deal. I know that lost people, when they sin, their sin ultimately will separate them from God forever. But I'm a child of God. You preach, pastor, that we can never lose our salvation. And so my sin, I know I should live better. I know I shouldn't compromise. But pastor, it's really not a big deal. That is a lie, as I said earlier, straight from the pit of hell, uh, even, even though that's not a theologically correct statement. That is a lie. That is a lie. We embrace that. People in church embrace that. People in Pergamum embrace that. People in Nacogdoches embrace that. But it is a lie. It may be, if that's our attitude, it may be that we aren't genuinely saved. And I don't say this lightly, and I, I know that that I need to choose my words carefully and I don't wish to call someone doubt or discourage someone unnecessarily. I know that I have a high responsibility there. But listen, if our attitude is that because we're saved, sin is no longer a big deal in our lives, that it may be that we're just not saved. Now, let me, let me show it to you in Scripture, because I, I don't want you to think I've just made this up. And, and by the way, I, I put my whole, my whole sermon outline at noeldeer.com. It's usually there by Monday afternoon. And um, this, uh, this sermon was like two hours long, and I've shortened it uh, for, for your sake. Um, <laughs> I heard that. But uh, I'm, I'm going to show you why it is biblical to say that you just may not be saved. And I, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. If, if, you're, if you struggle with this, then you can read more. But 1 John chapter 3, let me just read a couple of verses and we can show these to you on the screen. 9 and 10. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. This is a really simple passage. There are no big words, no complicated sentences. He goes on to say, because his seed remains in him, he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Here's how you tell the difference. Here's how you tell the difference. 
with other people, but more importantly, here's how you tell the difference with yourself. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Now, that's pretty plain, right? And, and, and just in case you're confused, right there in the book of 1 John, it says this three more times, three more times, three different places. It's all through the book of 1 John. And you might say, well, pastor, that's just one book, and that, 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 that doesn't seem like enough. Well, it ought to be enough, but it's not just one book. Listen to Romans 8, 13. There's no, there's no better book to describe to us the details of how salvation works than the book of Romans and Romans 8. So 8.13 says this, if you live according to the flesh, that means you, you, you live a life of sin. You live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, sin, then you will live. Same thing John said. Same thing John said. Let me read it to you, though, in one more place. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Uh, again, the Apostle Paul says... Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. Anytime the Bible says do not be deceived, it lets you know that many people are deceived about this, right? This is something people get wrong. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's plain, it's clear, it's repeated multiple times, if that's important. If we have settled sin in our lives, we're not children of God. Now, I, I know immediately there are verses popping in some of your minds. Well, what about this? What about that? Well, okay, I, I know the verses you're thinking of. Let's read them. Uh, first of all, the very book of 1 John that we quoted a while ago that said that Christians do not and cannot sin also says that Christians do sin. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. 1 John 1.9 says that when we sin, we should confess our sins to the Lord. 1 John 5.16 says if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin, and it gives some instructions so fellow believers can commit a sin. So how do we put these things together? The Bible clearly says Christians will not sin, but it clearly says that Christians do sin. It's a matter of settled sin in your life. And I want to show this to you. If you have sin that you have just settled on this, you're not fighting against it. You're not confessing it. You're not wrestling with it. You're not asking God to form the character of Christ in you. You're not asking God and his Holy Spirit to sanctify you and change you. You're just settled with it. If you have a lifestyle of settled sin, listen, nobody can argue. The Bible is crystal clear. You are not a child of God. You are not a child of God. You know, it's interesting. I like to read old books. Uh, the reason you read old books is that, and I've probably said this before, every, every generation, when you look back into history, every generation, it seems like they have a blind spot. Every generation of Christians, it seems like, you know, they got a lot of things right, but they got one thing wrong. And we just, you know, I can't believe they got that wrong. I mean, you look back in America at, uh, at slavery and how many Christians were uh, proponents of slavery. And we think, well, how, that's just nuts. How could that be? They got that wrong. You go back a, another hundred years and 
Christians got something else wrong and something, they got something else wrong before that. And it makes you wonder when, if the Lord tarries and people look back at our generation, what are we, what are we getting wrong? Does that scare you a little bit? So we can't go forward and read their books, but we can go back and read those books. And so I, I like to do that, and I think it's, I think it's helpful. I think every, every pastor should, should do that. And so one of the things I've been reading lately, uh, theologians from the, 17, or the 1600s, the 17th century, and I've been reading a lot of sermons by Thomas Manton and, and John Owen and Richard Baxter, and, and they love the Lord, and they, they believe the Bible just like we do, uh, and, uh, you know, the sermons are... Uh, I mean, they're right on. You get amen all the way through them. But it's interesting. Today, pastors, pastors like me, we emphasize grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so we should, right? I want to be known as a pastor who preaches grace and mercy and forgiveness, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We emphasize that today. If you go back to the, to the middle 1600s, you know what the faithful Bible teaching, preaching, pastors were emphasizing. They were talking about the grace and the mercy of God, certainly, forgiveness of God, certainly. But here's what they were emphasizing. They were emphasizing the fact that you can have no assurance of your salvation if you have settled sin in your life. Uh, I, I bet I've read a hundred sermons uh, from Thomas Manton in the last six months, and I think it's in every single sermon. I, I've read probably... Uh, 500 pages of, of John Owens, and, and, and every four or five pages, it's right there. You can't be certain you're saved if you have settled sin in your life. And so some people are thinking of Romans chapter 7, uh, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get in your heads and and, and think what you might be thinking. And so some people, uh, some of you are thinking, well, pastor, I'm, I hear what you're saying, but... But doesn't the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, the last part of Romans 7, doesn't he talk about all the sin that's in his life? Well, he does. But he does it in a way that proves the point. It does not deny the point. And let me just read some of what he said. In Romans 7, 15, Paul says, For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Paul said, there's sin in my life, and I'm frustrated about it, and I want to do right. I know what's right, but I find myself doing something else, and I'm frustrated about it. He says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. Paul said, I keep making these commitments and I make these promises and I break them and I make them and I break them. He's frustrated. Verse 24, he ends the chapter by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then in the next verse, the most, one of the most well-known verses in the book of Romans, it's uh, the next chapter, chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. And so somebody might say, see, Pastor, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he struggled with sin. And you're right, he did. But it wasn't settled sin. You see the point? He struggled with sin. He struggled. He wasn't, well, that's the way it is, and I'm saved, so the standard is lower, and it's no big deal because I'm covered in the blood of Christ. 
No, he struggled with it. He's miserable about it. In fact, listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians about his struggle. I find this verse extreme. He says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly, and I do not box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He said, I'm working as hard as I can work in order to have the character of Christ formed in me. Paul had sin, but it wasn't settled sin. And so we tell ourselves this lie. This is how we justify. This is how they were justifying it. This is the teaching of Balaam. I am an Israelite, they would have said. Or for us, I am a Christian. And so, pastor, my sin is no big deal. I can cheat on my wife. I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. I can, I can be dishonest in business. I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. I can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Pastor, I am a child of God. Well, if we have settled sin. The Bible brings into question whether or not we are children of God. So that's lie number one. Lie number two, I'll go faster. I plan to confess and seek forgiveness later. Now, raise your hand if you've... No, we won't do that. Um, we think when we say that, that forgiveness somehow erases the consequences of sin, and it does not, right? Forgiveness is real. And for a child of God, forgiveness is guaranteed. In fact, forgiveness is, is administered before you even sin. But forgiveness, confession, does not erase the consequences of sin. I mean, this will seem like a, you know, a pedestrian illustration, but imagine you're sitting tomorrow at a restaurant in town, you're having lunch with some friends, and out of the kitchen comes uh, one of the uh, one of the workers, and he's carrying this big bag of trash. In fact, it's so heavy, he's struggling with it. And he's trying to get it out of the restaurant. He walks by your table, and he, and he brushes against the corner of your table, and it just rips open the bag. And all the trash goes out in the floor. And you see, as soon as it hits the floor, that what this is, it's days-old food scraps. Somehow, somebody forgot over the weekend or something. And, and, and you can see it, and you can smell it. But you want to help, you feel sorry for this guy, and so you get down, and, and, and they got another bag there, and so you start helping him pick up this slop and put it in the bag. I mean, you just put your hands right down in it. But you get it all in the bag, and, you know, off he goes. And then you sit back down at, your, at the table with your friends, and you dust off your hands, you know, best you can. And you just pick up your hamburger, and you go to town. Eat a few French fries, it just adds a little you know, saltiness to it, but it's, it's pretty good. Now, one of your friends at that point will say, hey, you need to go and wash your hands. And you might say, listen, when I finish eating, I'm going to go and thoroughly wash my hands. Now, what's the problem with that? When you finish eating, it doesn't matter if, you've, if you wash your hands. I mean, the consequences will have already accrued to your account. We sin and say, I will ask the forgiveness of the Lord later. And we think that that's the same as asking for forgiveness now, repenting of our sins. And it's just, it's just not true. To, to plan to confess your sins is to plan to conceal your sins. Listen, to, to plan, if I plan to confess my sin later... I am planning 
to conceal my sin today. Does that make sense? So what does the Bible say about those who conceal sin? Proverbs 28, 13, the one who conceals sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Mercy. There's so much more we could say about this. You know, confession always revolves, involves regret, and, and we'll, we'll come back to some of that in a moment. Let's look at line number three. With my track record, one more sin can't be any worse. What's one more sin? I mean, I've, I've sinned a, a thousand times. I've, I, I've, been, I've been unfaithful. I have, I, have, I have been dishonest. And I've done it over and over and over and over. This is, this is terrible. And I know I, I'm guilty and I wish this weren't true. But, but what's one more time at this point? Uh, I think we've all said this. We'd be a little less uh, bold about admitting it. But there are times when we feel the conviction of the Lord to, to repent, to change, but we think, you know, I've gone so far and I've been gone so long, what's one more day? And, and you know the problem with that, I mean, one of the problems is there's always one more day, right? I mean, if, if you plan to repent tomorrow, I mean, that would still be bad. It should be today, not tomorrow. But the truth is, if you plan to repent tomorrow, tomorrow will never come. And so people say, with my track record, one more sin won't be any worse. There's so much I could say about that. Uh, I, I could talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit grieves over your sin every day, every one more sin. You think it's no big deal. The Spirit of God is grieving over that, and he extends a hand to lift you out of the mire. I could say and talk about the fact that every additional sin has eternal consequences. I could say that it will never be easier for you to turn away from that sin than it is today. You go one more day, you go one more look at it on the internet, you go one more night, I'm telling you, it'll be more difficult to repent tomorrow than it is today. There's never a better time to repent. There's never an easier time to repent than right now. But here's what I do want to say. Those are all sermons I wish I could preach. God's long-suffering, God's patience has a limit. Now, God's grace doesn't have a limit. His love doesn't have a limit. His mercy does not have a limit. But his patience has a limit. You read about it. Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 6, and on and on. If you, and I'm going to say this slowly because I just want you to think about it. If you are engaged in sin, some repetitive sin, and your life hasn't crashed or you haven't been caught, that is not because you are that clever. It's not because you are that smart. It's not because you have been that careful. It is because God has been merciful and he's given you one more day. But one day, you will reach the end of God's patience. Jesus shared the parable of the, of the owner of the farm that comes to visit his farm, and, he, and there's a tree. 
and it's not bearing fruit, he says, cut it down, cut it down. It's, it's worthless. And, and the, the farmhand uh, said, said, well, listen, no, let's give it just one more year. I'll fertilize it. We'll, we'll, we'll water it. We'll watch it. Let's give it one more year. And, and, and the owner of the farm says, okay, one more year. And if it doesn't bear fruit, we're cutting it down. And I think there's maybe some areas in our lives when God has said one more year or one more day. And if, and if you've not been caught or crashed, you, you know, how, how do these things end? You either, you, either somebody finds out and it's a crash or, or, or you're caught or, 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 you know, sin always has consequences, right? You crash. If you haven't been caught or crashed, people think, well, I'm clever. I'm careful. No, God is patient. So we have a choice. I think it's interesting in verse 16, and I'll wrap this up, but he he gives us a choice. It says again, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says you can repent or judgment, quick judgment. You you get to choose. Uh, Now, how do do you repent? Well, first you have to say to God, it's sin. What I'm doing is wrong. And it's my wrong. It's not it's not somebody's fault. Nobody's made me sin. It's not because life is hard. It's not because my husband this and my wife this and my boss this and my kids this and my parents this. No, I am guilty of sin. Nobody can ever make another person sin. So it's sin and I did it and I'm doing it and I'm wrong. You have to declare, you have to agree, you have to accept. Then you have to call on God for help. God, I've proven my character in this. I've proven I can't fix this. If I could have fixed this, I'd have fixed it a long time ago. I wouldn't even be talking to you about this. In fact, I wouldn't even need Jesus if I could fix it. But I do. I do need help. I do need Jesus. I need your forgiveness. I need your Holy Spirit to begin to change. And I'm going to cooperate with that. I'm going to do all I can. I'm going to call out to you every day until this is a part of my past. But I need your help. And then you just need to keep on keeping on. You know, sometimes the struggle with sin lasts a week or a month or a decade. But, but a genuine Christian like the Apostle Paul will continue to struggle and discipline himself and pray and call out to God, sometimes even in desperation like Paul did. And the character of Christ will be formed in you. Hey, I, I'm out of time. Let me just go to this last little part. Verse 17, it's a long verse. There are really three parts. He talks about, I'll give you the hidden manna. I'll give you a white stone and a, and a new name. And it seems a little bit like code. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, But, you know, from a pastor's point of view, here's what this is. You know, this letter was given to the pastor of the church at Pergamum. And uh, what what Jesus was doing is he was just, you know, setting a ball on the tee so that the pastor could, you know, hit it out of the park. This This is the gospel message. And so let me just tell you what those three things mean. Hidden manna. What is the manna? Manna is food, bread in the Old Testament. The hidden manna is Jesus. Whatever your need is, it is ultimately Jesus. Whether you say that you're lonely or you're depressed or you're scared or you're fearful or you're this or you're that, the manna, the satisfaction you need is Jesus. He's the answer to every question. Jesus. It's hidden because most people never see it. We turn a thousand different ways and we don't see that the answer is Jesus. He's the hidden hidden manna. What does it mean that he will give us the white stone? There are actually you know, several different theories about this because a white stone was used for different symbolic things in this part of the world. But here's what I, 
Here, here's the one I think uh, best fits here. Uh, in, in those days when there was a trial and there was a jury, they had jury trials then. So all the evidence would be presented and then the, the jurors uh, would drop into a basket either a white stone or a black stone. They had stones. And uh, so a white stone meant, I believe he's innocent or she's innocent. A black stone, guilty. This is amazing. At the end of my life, when I stand before God, and listen, I identify way too much with the end of Romans chapter 7. I'm telling you, I do. But when I get to the end, Jesus, the ultimate juror, is going to look at the at the days of my life and he's going to hand me a white stone that says I know everything there is to know about you but I know that you've trusted what I've done for your forgiveness and so I pronounce you not guilty not guilty I'm ready for my white stone and then finally it says a new name what does it mean that he's going to give me a new name well, when do you get new names? You know, in our culture, you get new names. I guess when you get married, it's one, one way. But I, I don't think that's what's referenced here. Uh, there's a time in our culture where you get a new name that was the same as their culture. You get a new name if you're adopted into a new family, right? When, um, when we adopted my, uh, my youngest daughter, uh, her name was Yong Ray. Uh, Yong was, uh, in China, they say the names backwards, or they say we say them backwards. There are more of them than us, so I guess we're the ones that are backwards, but uh, they put the surname as first, so her surname was Yong, and, uh, and her first name was, you know, what we would call the proper name, the given name was Ray. But when she came in our family, I mean, she still is who she is, right? I mean, we didn't bring in our family and call her Sally Smith. I mean, she's still Ray. She was Ray before, she's Ray now. But she's not young Ray, she's Ray Deer. She is a part of us and will be forever, forever. So one day I'll stand before the Lord and I'll recognize that everything I've ever longed for in life, Jesus is the satisfaction. He will hand me a white stone and he'll say, not guilty. And then he will say, you are adopted forever and ever into my family. And he will give me a new name. Head bowed and eyes closed for a moment. These could be tough verses, hard verses to wrestle with. I believe that there are many people who come to church week after week that believe with all their hearts that they are children of God, but they are not. And, and, and God doesn't mean this to be some mystical thing that nobody can figure out. The evidence is pretty simple. He says, if you have settled sin, you have settled sin that you're not fighting against, struggling with, that's the reason to question your salvation. But this isn't bad news. This is good news. Because Jesus waits as the hidden manna with the white stone ready to adopt you in his family. And here's how you'd do that. You'd pray a prayer like this. Father, I know I'm guilty of sin. That's who I am. I am a broken person. But I know that Jesus died for my sins. And I don't trust how good I can be. I've already tried that. I trust how good Jesus has been. And I trust that he has paid the penalty for my sins. 
And I ask you because of that to forgive me. And I surrender myself to Christ. I turn from my sins. I embrace you. I'll still sin. I'll still be broken uh, uh, while I'm on this earth. But I will not stop seeking you to form the character of Christ in my life. I surrender to you today. If you'll pray that prayer, Father, I pray that those people will mean it, will embrace you, and their lives will be changed today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together in both services.